my cup. Think to be a decker, most to see Kalein and far them top. Gate me pains of lint. Welcome to Kill Me Now with Judy Gold. I am your host, Judy Gold, which is why I'm making this announcement. And I, before I introduce uh, this week's episode, I just want to say if you live in Florida, gay, 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 Florida, I will be in Fort Lauderdale at the Raz Room at the Savoy Theater on March 26. So get your tickets. You can go to my website, judygold.com. Also, uh, gay. I hope you enjoy my conversation this week with Malcolm Nance. I... I mean, I've been dying to have him on for so long. He's so brilliant. He's such a great guy. You'll hear. And he's like an encyclopedia of knowledge and so fascinating. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation, part one of my conversation with the incredible Malcolm Nance. And if you're not sitting, then it's fine. You can still listen. (laughs) <laughs> Malcolm, I think you have other things to do, but ladies and gentlemen, I know you know that voice. And if you don't know that voice, don't listen to my podcast anymore. It is the one and only Malcolm Nance on my fucking podcast, people. And he's in bed. <laughs> I'm exhausted. He's exhausted. I don't know why. It's not like there's any sort of war going on, but I just want to say I love Malcolm Nance. And a lot of people don't know this about Malcolm Nance. He is a huge comedy fan. And I met him in person, you know, doing the MSNBC, whatever, you know. Hi, I'm the funny one on the panel. I know he's brilliant. I know you're like, oh, my God, where, how big is his brain? But he is one of the most humble, nicest, great. You're just a great guy. (laughs) I remember when you and I met my wife was there, my late wife. Marie. Yes was there and you came running and you go, oh my God, Malcolm Nance, I love you. And I go, oh my God, Judy, God, I love you. I couldn't and believe I, you knew me. And then I reminded you of that joke that you had made on, what was the name of that show on Comedy Central where they would all sit around talking? Tough politics. crowd, tough crowd. Tough crowd. I love that show. Somebody needs to bring that back. Oh, well, you know what? I see Colin all the time and that's all we say is that why that not? show needs to be on so bad. Well, right? I recall this is how old that show was because you just mentioned your son in college. Oh, I know. And I remember because my my daughter's gay. And, right. you know, I always say this to her. I say there was this time Judy Gold was was on Tough Crowd. And um, one of the one of the other guests was joking about going over to your house to see hot lesbian sex. And she said, you come to my bedroom, you're going to find two exhausted parents, three kids, three (laughs) kids, two exhausted parents, you know, not even in their pajamas. Right. I said to my daughter, I go, that's marriage. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't matter whether you're, we only have two kids, but. Okay. You have three, you have three, but. I have three. Exactly. We're no different than anyone else. No. And my wife loved that joke. Oh, um, yeah. And I'm so but, sorry. Well, you know, life sends screwballs at you. And the best thing ever said about my, my beloved late wife, Mary's, uh, who passed two and a half years ago from cancer, was a, a, I was written, a journalist wrote to me 
uh, afterwards. And he says, do you believe in reincarnation? This guy I knew I met in Dubai and he lived in Singapore. And he said, listen, can I give you some, some solace here? He said, think of it this way. You and your wife were on the same journey to the same destination, right? You were all on the same flight to the same destination. Right. And you stop at an intermediate stop and the lady comes over to you and says, hey, listen, your wife is going ahead of you. First class, you know, Cafe Pacific, <laughs> right. you know, first class, gets to take showers in flight, all of that stuff, free champagne for the next right. 16 hours. And you've got to stay here with a 10-day layover, but you're going to fly Ryanair in the last seat coach <laughs> <laughs> with no snacks or even a power plug. Right. And he goes, but eventually you'll both arrive at the same destination. Oh. And it was so comforting to me. I called him immediately. This was like the day after the funeral. And I said, you just solved my entire visualization of this thing. So my wife is That's in great. first class. She's already at the raffles in Singapore, you know, in the president's suite. <laughs> I'm in coach on Ryanair. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think about that. It's so sad. It's just so sad. And for your kids, I hope they're doing okay. But, you know, losing a parent is the worst. It's the worst. I mean, losing a child is the worst. Yeah. And my my kids are adopted. So, you know, my my daughter, my youngest is 27, who who was working with me at that time. And she's taking it very, still taking it very hard because. Of course, it's her mother. You know, she was so young that, you know, they had the blood mother and daughter clashes. Right. <laughs> to have it in teen years. And I was like, wow, you guys are like related. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, so uh, but it's it, it's a component of life that we're all going to have to deal with. I hate the word widower. It's like, oh, horrible. I hate it. But, you know, now I know something. Uh, I have a deeper, more profound relationship with my wife. Right. And uh, she talks to me all the time. And she and, sees a lot more than she probably did before. Oh, so you my be God. Careful. And, yeah. And, and screams in my ear. What yeah. are you doing? <laughs> Malcolm, what the hell are you doing? That's exactly. <laughs> I'll tell you what's funny, because she's French Canadian and she was famous in Washington, D.C. for her accent because right. she was landscape architect in Washington, D.C. And I met Mayor Muriel Bowser after her funeral and she said i remember your wife and i said oh really why she goes well we were on city council and marise was the landscape architect and she came in and she did a big presentation on these new parks she had designed for the city where she was focusing resources money and talent to these black communities that were underserved and they were called focus parks and so she comes to the council meeting and she says Today, I'm going to present Fuck Us Parks. If Fuck Us Parks of Washington, D.C. will fuck us. <laughs> she couldn't understand. The oh, my God. Were they all laughing? They were in tears. And she was telling me this joke. And I was like, that's in her obituary. Oh, my God. That's the, fucking hilarious. The Fuck Us Parks of Washington, D.C. The Fuck you know, and, and I was like, oh, my God, the mayor of D.C. remembers that joke. 
<laughs> and that was the best thing, you know, and, and I love my wife and her crazy accent. Um, but, you know, I've, I'll see her again. Yeah. And, uh, but she was she was hilariously funny for a French Canadian. So, right. <laughs> Malcolm, you have had some life. I'm going to go back. I do. I do a lot of research on my guests and I know we'll eventually talk about the world, but I am more interested in you as a human being. Your family has been in the military for generations. They started in April of 1864. Yeah, that's as early as documents as we can find. Yeah, because, you know, they (laughs) this country not good with that. Um, (laughs) And. You're from a slave family in northern yeah. Alabama, and one parent is uh, northern Alabama, started from a white slave owner in Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah, Nances. Yeah, and the other, uh, I guess your mom from, is it Georgia? No, my dad's Georgia, Georgia. and my okay. mom's South Carolina. But South Carolina. The slave owner came through oh, South Carolina. West, yeah. Western Georgia. And there yeah. was a place called Nanceville there. It's it's a cemetery now, but at the time it was a town. But Nanceville Cemetery. So all the white Nances who had slaves moved to Western Georgia and then settled in Alabama and Northern Alabama. And let me tell you, the name Nance is not a normal name. Um, it comes from either one of two sources, and the most common source is whales. So if you've ever seen Poldark <laughs> on PBS, <laughs> that's right. where the dances are from. Truro, uh, you know, Truro, uh, not whales. Um, um, oh, oh, what is it? Uh, not whales. It's below whales there in, in England. But it's where Truro is. And um, Or if you've seen the TV show Doc Martin. Right. <laughs> That's the same place. It's where the Penzance, you know, the Pirates of Penzance are from. So that whole little spit of, of tough land down there is where the, the white Nances come from. And other people think it's it extends from the, the Norwegian Nansen, but right. it doesn't. It's, it's all English. And we've seen, and this guy, you know, bopped over in the late 1700s and then went to South Carolina to make his fortune and picked up one slave. And went to Western Georgia and, you know, created all these Nance, white Nance progeny. What's interesting, and this is something I found out when I was doing my ancestral research. I was very surprised how many slaves actually had last names of their own. Really? Virtually all of them. Because when they did the surveys, and this is how you can find your your family history, uh, until 1940, Every survey in the United States took down the name and age and education of everyone. Right. So handwritten, 19- handwritten, handwritten too. Yeah. And um, so this is where Ancestry.com gets their big plug. So you know when they when they did their you know their audits, you know the the annual um, um, you know audit of everyone in the right. United States, they would put census, down the census, the census, the census, right. They would put down Negro, no education, laborer, you know, and it would be like Green Nance and his wife, Myra Nance and all these other little Nances. And then right up above will be all the white Nances who are the slave owners. <laughs> right. You're like, hey, wait a minute. It's not, you know, Roots lied to me. It wasn't right. just Toby. It was Toby 
Schmuckatelli or whoever the uh, whoever the slave owner was, you know, die Schmuckstern or, you know, so I found that very fascinating. And so it was relatively easy to track us. The earliest reference we have is 1846. Fascinating little figure here because the first actual documented Nance wasn't a Nance. It was a young woman by the name of Winnie Watson. And in 1842, she was listed in the slave registry at like uh, two or three years old, along with all the other children of the Watsons. Then at like age seven or eight, they would start listing her as mulatto, which means she was the child of a slave slave owner Owner. and was white enough with the others that they had her listed as a as a child. Then they made the distinguishing comment, mulatto, which means 50-50, when she started getting pigmented a little older. And then she, of course, ran away. Well, she didn't run away, but she married a black man and who was Green Nats and uh, created that whole little little group there. But it's fascinating going back and looking up that history. Especially Uh, for African-Americans. It's like... Oh, yeah. It's... uh, I mean, the Jew, as a Jew... Um, We know everything. We know everywhere. Everyone is, you know, it's like we came from here, then we got kicked out of here, then we went, you know, like everyone who does like their gets their DNA done is like, I'm 99.999 Ashkenazi. (laughs) But and I just feel so bad that this country is so fucking racist. Um, True. So many people can't find. I don't know. It just it really is upsetting. Um. It's interesting, too, that they they enrolled in the military. You know, you think. Fascinating, huh? Yeah, because why would you defend the country that considers you, you know, three fifths of a person? I mean, it's amazing to me. What I found fascinating was because my my great great grandfather and his brother, Green Nance and his brother, William Henry Nance. Uh, they were living in northern Alabama as slaves. And then, boom, they magically, there's no real record of them until they appear, which is which is real slave talk, right? right? I mean, I would have to go to northern Alabama, try to find some of those old rolls of the, you know, that's real hard. But right. they pop up in April 1864 enlisting in, in the first unit, which was called the First Alabama Volunteers, which was a provisional black unit that was formed as the Tennessee River Valley was under attack by Grant. So right. they were like, need some need some guys with with guns or pikes. Right. And they got them. Then he joined the U.S. The, Army, transitioned them into the 111th U.S. 111th U.S. Colored Troops. I have it written yeah. down. And um, to give you an idea. And his idea, brother came and his brother went with him. Yeah, both of them go, yeah. ran away together. To the Tennessee Valley. Yeah. And this is fascinating. So after, I guess, after a few months of guarding empty bridges and not shooting white people, they, William Henry, and you know, that's why they joined the army, right? right? right. Slaves do not join the army to go move dirt. Right. Okay. They joined the army for an opportunity. And the only opportunity that would have been fun and interesting would have been out there shooting Confederate soldiers. Right. 
Um, so William Henry was like, okay, this isn't exciting enough. So right. he actually left the army, joined the, the Navy, Navy, yeah, and became a landsman, which is just like Joe Blow labor on a riverine Perfume. gunboat. Right. And that job was he liked that. That on the Tennessee he, River. He was on the yeah, Tennessee River, yeah. But he goes up and down and he bombards Confederate, you know, forts. He's like, oh yeah, this is the job. So he remained right. in that. So we our family was both Army and Navy in the Civil War, which made for a lot of conundrum until oh, World I War II. Oh, I bet. I it was bet. all Army until World War II. And, you know, and then it became 100% Navy. But interesting fact, William Henry at the end of the war just had so much fun bombarding people that in the, <laughs> in the late 1860s, um, he goes out west to Kansas and he joins the uh, U.S. 9th Cavalry. And becomes Buffalo Soldier in Lima Troop, 9th Cavalry. And somehow on patrol got an inner ear infection, which back then was lethal. Right. And he died. He died, oh. in, you know, he died in service and is buried at the uh, at the U.S. Army Cemetery in Fort Leavenworth. So if any of you go out there, all you're going to see, find his tombstone. It's a W.H. Nance. And, uh, but we have his hospitalization record. We have all of his patrol records. We have his um, death certificate. Wow. Uh, you know, Ancestry is the bomb. I mean, you but know. Is an- wait, Anc- I did 23andMe, but Ancestry, are they owned by the Mormons who want to convert everyone? That's what they say. <laughs> because when I, I, went, I went to, um, I was shooting a movie in Utah, and then we went to the. Um, Where in, in- Utah? Where was it? Park City. It was years ago. Oh, it was Park like 20s. City. Nice. Yeah, it was nice. And we're shooting this movie and we went to the library and they're like, welcome. Welcome to the library. We know <laughs> everything about you. And it's like because they're all trying, you know, they're trying to convert Holocaust people who died in the Holocaust. I am. And I mean, they have this whole you go in a room and they talk to you. And I, it, I was like giggling. I couldn't. Oh, my God. But they're so like, hi. It's like the one. Hey. I, yeah. Super secret. Okay, top secret story time. I was sent by the National Security Agency to Brigham Young for for an entire semester because they have a foreign language training program there. We were taking a secret Libyan dialect course way back then, and they were trying to convert us left and right. Not the black guys, but everybody. Right, right, right. Because we're Lamanites. We're the people who who didn't side with God when God and Jesus were having a battle, a, right. a rap battle over who controlled heaven. So they right. cast us down as dark people. Wow, that's I crazy. Because people would insult me, throw insult me, insults at me on the campus like they were using the N-word. <laughs> they go, Lamanite. Um, I had to look it up. I had to treat those people like they were a foreign, you know, I was deployed to a foreign country. Well, you basically were. Yeah. Brigham well, Young University, forget it. There was only yeah. one 7 Eleven that served caffeinated coffee. We hit that bug. Oh, yeah, that's right. You morning. can't have caffeine or chocolate. Oh, I, I don't know. Or cigarettes. These. Right. So I would walk up with a I didn't smoke, but I walk up with a cigarette and a 7 Eleven <laughs> big coffee every morning. Uh, I love that. And my um, hotel room was the biggest bar in Southern Utah. That's great. <laughs> I bet you were popular. Um, oh, with the ladies. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we were. <laughs> oh, I do have a friend, Jewish, who is dying to date you. Okay. 
So, is this from one of the ladies that was around the fire in Provincetown? No, no, no. But she's <laughs> she's pretty. Yeah, you would love her. All right. So is she Jewish? Yes, Me? Jewish. You know, you didn't get to this, but I grew up in an Orthodox. I did. I have it right here. I have it right here. Grew up in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. That is the next thing on the agenda. Okay. You know, I love my liquid IV, that I drink liquid IV pretty much every day. And I love it because it keeps me hydrated. I travel with it because it's in little packets. It tastes great. It's an amazing product. It hydrates better than water alone, three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drinks, eight vitamins and nutrients, non-GMO. But here's the best part. You know I've been bragging about Ben, my son Ben, who plays basketball. His team, his entire team, They love Liquid IV. I mean, they are number four in the nation. They are an amazing team. They've done better than ever this year. Dare I say it's because of the Liquid IV? I'm not going to say for sure, but I'm telling you, these athletes love Liquid IV. They love all the flavors, strawberry, lemonade. I love the watermelon. I never give them any of my watermelon. They have sugar-free, white peach, green grape, lemon, lime. It makes you feel great. And if you need a little caffeine, the, the uh, lemon ginger is beyond, beyond. And I know they use it while they're working out. I'm pretty sure they might use it after a game that they won and went out and had, you know, a couple of drinky poos. But that being said, I love Liquid IV. They're a great sponsor. They're a great product. And I honestly couldn't live without them. And it's winter still. You need to be hydrated. Hydration is very important. So weekends are for going wild, as you all know. Have a game plan for Monday. That's what you need. I just had this conversation with Ben's girlfriend. I said, if you're going to go out and party, you need a game plan. And what's your game plan? Liquid IV. Weekends are for going wild. Have a game plan for Monday with Liquid IV. Grab your Liquid IV hydration multiplier sugar-free. In bulk, nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code JudyGold, J-U-D-Y-G-O-L-D, at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Superior Hydration today using promo code JudyGold, J-U-D-Y-G-O-L-D, at liquidiv.com. You're welcome! So you grew up in philly you're a philly kid yeah which is why you say on instead of on and Mm -hmm. you grew up in you're a catholic kid in an orthodox jewish neighborhood so what does that mean like are all your neighbors jewy or yeah Yeah. and it's, it's fascinating i didn't realize until i was in my career that this set me on my path to my career um because i live i was St. Barbara's Elementary School in Winfield uh, section of Philadelphia was a massive Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. Massive. And they had three kinds of people there. They had the new lower middle class blacks who were sending their kids to Catholic school. They had the Irish who were moving out because there were so many Jews there. Right. You know, and I mean like fresh off the boat Irish. Right, right. And then they had these enormous shuls there. Right. Just massive. 
Uh, and the, they had the nicest houses and everything. Well, of course, we, were, we have all the money. However, right. the Orthodox Jews who lived there were living in row houses. Right. Right? It was right. the reforms who were using, living in the big Yeah, houses. right. The assimilators. So, yeah. In fact, they still have the oldest boys' shul in Pennsylvania. Really? At Station in Philadelphia. But my neighbor, the kids who were on the next block, we were the like the lower middle class blacks who were up and coming. And I wanted to know, why do these kids wear white shirts all the time? Right. Why do they have hair locks? Right. You know, what do, what do you call that? Is it a kippah it's a or pass. a yarmulke? Oh, right. Kippah, yarmulke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like. I'm just bringing the book. Yeah. And um, oh, the big one that got my curiosity. And this is the thing. They excited the one thing that anybody needs in the intelligence world, curiosity. Right. And so here's the big one. What the hell with the tent? (laughs) 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 To this day, I I still don't quite have the tent down on the front lawn, you know. But it's only for like a, a, a week or two. Yeah, yeah, the tent. Yeah. It's because it's the beginning of the harvest, and you build this. It's ce- celebrating the land, and it's a mitzvah to right. eat inside of the sukkah. It's a, so oh. you go have all your meals in there. Some people sleep in there if they're mental. So hey, where I got you, my first matzah. There, that's Passover. Okay, so okay, I got that too. You, when did I get gefilte fish? Oh, uh, either any any of them. Okay. Any of the holidays, except for Yom Kippur, where we don't need. Um, okay. Did you have any Jewish friends, or were you guys yes. so you did? Did yes. you go to any bar mitzvahs? I didn't go to any bar mitzvahs, uh-huh. but the two, well, because we were really young, we were like ten, right. right? And so my 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 good friend there was named David, and yeah. his little and his little brother Shemshem. Uh... <laughs> Shem. and he was like. Five and and David was like our age, seven or eight. Right. This, by the way, this is Bill the peak Bill Cosby radio album period right. in history, like nineteen seventy. Right. You know, six sixty nine seventy. Fat Albert. Uh, yeah. Yes. Um, we actually played Buck Buck and all oh, those well. crazy games that yeah. eventually would become a TV show. Right. And uh, cartoon. And so, uh, you know, that's my sin that I'm confessing to there. So, and that's all Bill Cosby taught me. So we we did have Jewish friends, and 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 but most importantly, we had a Jewish deli on the oh, corner. Oh, very important. And this is where my career in in intelligence and cryptology begins, because one day, you know, we go in, we order our sandwiches, we stand around, and you see Jewish newspapers in the racks. Right. Well, I'm not paying ten cents for right. a, a paper that's in Yiddish or that's in f- funny language, right? It's right. not even Yiddish. It's it's Hebrew. actually Hebrew. Yeah. So one day I'm walking down the street and I see a fresh scrap of Hebrew newspaper going down the street. And I didn't know it was Hebrew. I just knew it was right. the, the language the Jewish people spoke. So I picked it up and I said, I want to know what this says. So I took it to the free library on, on 54th Street up near St. Joe's. I love that library, by the way. I love it. I'm sure when I die, I'll bequeath something to it. Because that's where we, you, it was the center of all everything. Right. There was no internet back then. So you go hang out at the library. Right, right. So I take it in and I go to the library and I say, hey, I need to learn how to read this. I think it's Hebrew. Do you have any Hebrew 
alphabet books. And right. she looks at me like I'm a nut. And she goes, yes, here's the kick. Those damn books are in the same place right now, 50 years later. No way. I should shoot up. They are. We can say bad words, right? <laughs> they are, I wonder if anyone has opened them since. I wonder if anybody signed it out since I was 10. So That is crazy. Okay. They are in the exact same spot. And I go down there and she, the book is like the Abata book or, or whatever, right. the Aleph file. And so she gives it to me and she goes, this is Hebrew. So I sit down and I stow, oh, this is like Morse code. Right. So I go one symbol, one thing. So I phoneticize it out. And then I go, that's weird. And so the woman was at this counter was Jewish and she had been right. sort of watching me. And she goes, well, you know, they read from right to left, right? <laughs> And I go, no. And so it comes out. And I now have, in cryptology, we call this a decrypt, right? I have decrypted this code. So right. my first decrypt was a, was a Jewish, was a, you know, a, a newspaper that was in Hebrew. And right. I'm like, oh, awesome. And then I look at the decrypt of like two sentences. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense, you know? And so I'm looking and I'm like, you know, it's. It, it it looks like German. Right. <laughs> well, because it's Yiddish. Yiddish. And I didn't know it until I brought the decrypt over to my cryptologic analysis section, which was David, who took it to the chief of analysis, who was his father. <laughs> and his father came down and gave a briefing to everybody in the, you know, the Yiddish decryption section right. of Melvin Street. And, <laughs> and, and said, announced, well, this is Yiddish. It's half German, half Russian, half Polish, but right. it's, they use the Hebrew alphabet for right. it. And I'm like, that's fascinating. I want in on that. What do I do? Cryptologic linguist. <laughs> I love it. I, and did they did they show you the vowels, the symbols of the vowels and all that? Yes. Yes. It's really, I mean, I, start, I learned it because I went to Hebrew school. Yes. And I... I can open the book and I mean, I don't know what I'm saying 90% of the time, but I can sit and read it aloud. And I'm like, I can't believe I know how to do that. And it's you all because I went thing, to Hebrew school. Yeah. You know, my, my synagogue, <laughs> I'm a member is in Great Neck, Temple oh Emmanuel. Oh my God. Temple Emmanuel in Great Neck. My, my, my rabbi is a rabbi, Robert Widham. Who they they welcome me. They're just wonderful, wonderful people. I give speeches there all the time. Right. And, you know, when I'm talking to these guys, you know, the, I, I, you know, we, we, we go do the whole service on Friday evenings. Right. And so they have, oh, my God, the I now understand what a good cantor is. Right? Oh, right. Their guy is insane yeah. beautiful voice i mean i look at him and there's this big bulky guy right. and i'm like i'm jealous right <laughs> this thing. some and, of them uh, are, are like you're just like why are you why did you pick this instead of Broadway? Yeah. yeah but it's the hebrew that throws me off but when yeah. i see phonetization i completely understand all the words because right. i don't want to be the one to say that you know the two semitic languages of arabic and hebrew are very similar yeah but <laughs> they're very similar 
you know, but that's my my bane is that I didn't learn all. I, I learned the Hebrew alphabet. I'm just too lazy to actually read the words. Yeah, you strike me as lazy. Now, I almost I, married an Israeli, by the way. Oh, aren't, yeah. aren't they beautiful? Bullet dodged, buddy. Yeah, yeah. let's just keep going with you that. You did dodge it. Dodge like one Israeli, one Israeli military guy said to me, he goes, they are beautiful. Uh, they are beautiful women, but they have they have the, the shout like the mother. And oh, they yeah. have the dress <laughs> like the Italians, yeah. but they have the attitude of the black chicks. Ah, that's <laughs> hilarious. Like, hey, he's right. Yeah. Yeah. You said, uh, I read that you said at a very early age, you studied and were fascinated with the Middle East and particularly the Arab-Israeli war starting in 67. And you were about seven years old at the time. Yep. And that when the 73 war came up and in the Munich Olympics, which I remember, that's when it all became so fascinating to you. Yeah. I was 12 in 1973. And so right. to me, now it's, you know, it's bomb guns and helicopter rides. I'm a military kid. I've lived on military bases and I'm watching television. And the first thing I saw was some old replay stuff right. of the, um, uh, the, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad organization. I remember now, or was it? No, it was Black September blowing up the aircraft at Dawson Field in Jordan. I'm like, right. whoa, they just blew up four airplanes. As a kid, you're right. like, that's awesome. Right. So on the other hand, on the other hand, you have, um, you know, the Munich Olympics happens and you're realizing there's two sides. There's not two sides in the story. There are two opposing forces. Right. And I found a book, you know, I saw the whole Olympics. I saw, heard about the massacre. I remember the moment that they showed the helicopters burned out uh, with the, where the Olympic team had died. Right. And that, boom, set me on my path to counterterrorism. I wanted to know about this. Right. And there was a book that I still have that I later found in life, but I didn't take the one for the free library, called Israel's, was it the Israel 73 War? And I studied right. that book like an encyclopedia. Funny, fast forward. When I came into the military in 1980, I tried to become a Russian linguist because, you know, it was hip to be part of the Cold War. But that set me on that career. But I became it. I came in as a Russian linguist and I had studied Russian for a year. But, you know, most of the the, the Russian instructors at Defense Language Institute were a little racist back in the 80s. What? <laughs> they were all for the Soviet Union. Right. And uh, they were like, Russian is not for you. You are you are you are need to be taking Arabic or Korean. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not taking Korean. <laughs> so I took Arabic and boom, everything fell into place. Wow. All of my stuff from my childhood, all of these things, even the fact that Luke Skywalker right. was in Tatooine, which is actually a small village in Tunisia near the Libya border, which I have now visited after going from Libya. So, you know, it all fell into place. Were you, I mean, every, I mean, I've listened to a bunch of interviews with you and if, and just watching you, you're, you're not only so articulate, but 
it's like that brain is like the size of the Upper West Side. I mean, it. Oh, it's not. You have so much information in there. Were you? Were kids like, oh, that's weird, Malcolm? Like, what? I can't imagine you. I can imagine you being a precocious kid. You're a fucking spy. Like, you're so. I, but I wasn't weird, Malcolm, because I've met weird people who right. came into our career field, like black guys who were like really weird, like Urkel. Right. We had a guy right. literally an Urkel clone right. who wore a black trench coat all day and white gloves. Right. So I wasn't that guy. Right. <laughs> I was, I was like you said, precocious. You know, it was, I, I always tell people there were two TV shows that, that also influenced me so much in my childhood. And one was called um, the International Children's Film Festival with mm-hmm. Kukla Fran and Ollie. Oh, I love Kukla Fran and Ollie. <laughs> See that? There you yes. go. That show. But remember, every show, every movie they played was from a foreign country. Right. Right. And I, I even remember one from Russia, which was this kid who was a hockey player named Pekacek or whatever. And, you know, he's, he's this is the Soviet Union. Right? right. So that was a black hole that was fascinating to me. Uh, same thing, films from communist China right. or kids in Indonesia. And you're like, right. wow, that's awesome. And then there was another show that would magnify that Big Blue Marble. I don't remember Blink Big Oh, Blue my God. Go look up the theme to Big Blue Marble. It'll pop back in your head. It was a show of short segments about kids all around the world. Wow. And, you know, the theme is the Earth's a Big Blue Marble. If you see it from out there, you know, it, it's it's all the kids are the same around the world, no matter where you see them. And right. now I'm like some kid goat herding, you know, the Mutla Ridge and. Right. In Jordan or, you know, and another kid motorbiking in Southern California and another kid, you know, who, who has to weave baskets in Calcutta. Right. And you're like, what the hell? I want to see that. So that really gave me that. These shows gave me that insatiable curiosity. But, and, but what kid is thinking about kids in other countries? I mean, I... It's just fascinating to me that you're lo- that you see an entire world out there. It's a gift. Well, I think it's a. I, I, well, my dad was in the navy. All right, and right. everybody before him until 1864 did something fascinating. My dad was a phenomenally voracious reader because when you're transporting thousands of troops on troop ships to the South Pacific to make them land on Okinawa. You got to read. You got right? <laughs> nothing to do but read, right. you know, in this three week voyage. And so my dad had a phenomenal library. And I have to tell you something. I have bested him by an order of magnitude. I've got over 2000 books between wow. my wife and myself. And, uh, you know, and when I get this floor job, this floor fixed here in my my library, we're going to put in all the bookshelves. <laughs> but we've got two hallways, you know, waist high with books. And my dad did that to me. And the books that he always handed, the interesting ones, what he always handed to me were science fiction and like gave me Starship Troopers when I was like 12 and, you know, Robert, lots of Robert Heinlein books and everything like that. Ursula K. Le Guin. And then Star Wars came out, you know, oh, and yes, I saw I that remember. Yeah. 19 times. Wow. In wow. the first month. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not joking. And so now you put 
Well, oh that is a little. Oh, there goes Malcolm. That weird Malcolm's going to see. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a CVS now. The theater that I went to. Yeah. Jeff wow. But <laughs> that's weird. All the CVSs are old theaters. Um, but the thing was, it all this combination came together. Luke Skywalker's boy's journey, you know, the hero's journey. And, you know, my dad pushing all these books on me. Oh, my dad was big on, on you know, knowing words because Martin Luther King was big on words. And all of that stuff came together. Orthodox Jewish Neighborhood, Big Blue Marble, right. you know, Children's Film Festival. I want to see stuff. I want to get out there and see stuff. And uh, I mean, I took in Philly, you could go to South Philly High School on Saturdays and take free language lessons. That's amazing. And they had like crazy languages in there, like, you know, like Sri Lanka, you know, Sri Lankan and Tamil. And I took Russian and Chinese, Mandarin Chinese, though, you know, and the only thing I came out of that was I could sing the flower drum song (laughs) in Chinese. Were you a great student? I wasn't the greatest student, but I worked at it. And when I got to Defense, like when I left right after that, I went to Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California, when right. I in the Navy. And it's not a small school. OK, it's in the most beautiful spot on the Pacific. You're on the best property. I mean, it's billion dollar property if they were to ever sell that place. And you go into language school for one year, three months. And the first thing that they do to you is they go, hi, good morning. Welcome to class. Uh, Here's your vocabulary for the day. Here's how you pronounce it. And here's your first 200 words. And tomorrow we're going to have a quiz. Oh, every 200 words, 100 to 200 or so. That is crazy. You had to spend the night memorizing all these words in Arabic. And it might be hello, goodbye, you know, you know wire-guided anti-tank missile. <laughs> and, you know, and by the way, the Israelis have this school in Netanyahu, you know, in Netanya, where, right. where we used to send our Hebrew linguists. But um, it was a fascinating place. But I tried to quit in my first three weeks. And I had an Egyptian instructor. And this is where culture oh, comes Oh, yes. In. I love this story. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. So, Mr. Helmi Raphael, I'll never forget this guy. And I go, oh, Mr. Raphael, I want to quit. This is too hard. I should be in Russian. He's like, oh, you, they sent us to you. They sent you to us. <laughs> All right. And I'm like, okay. And he goes, listen, okay, you quit. After two weeks, you take this test, you quit. No problem. Right? And so I'm like, okay, I'll quit in two weeks. I'm going out to the fleet. I'm going to fly in helicopters. Yeah. So. Two weeks later, boom, 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 taking these tests. You're putting in. Now I've got several thousand words in my head. And all you do is study. And you have mandatory study hall from 3 to 6. Then you have chow from 6 to 7. And then from 7 to 1 a.m., you're studying all those flashcards. And so six months later, I go, wasn't I supposed to quit? (laughs) 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 And the worst part was, He's the funny. Egyptians are the funniest of all Arabs. Okay, they are just well. You know, they're not known for the senses of humor. But go ahead. oh yes, they are. <laughs> they are. I want you to Google Egyptian uh, uh, vintage Egyptian comedy movie, and okay. they have an entire generation of Marx Brothers like 
Phil. Really? You don't have to speak a word of Arabic. Just okay, watch those I'm doing films. it. The slapstick is phenomenal. And they always have the same thing, right? Like boy wants to meet girl. Girl is being held back by family, right? Uh, crazy uncles come in and try to get the two together. Father is standing in the way and he still wears a fez from the Turkish occupation. <laughs> and, and and then, you know, mother is like all the time. And then, then everyone goes to a nightclub and Um Kathum starts singing some classic Arab song, you know? <laughs> and then it's like, okay, back to the Marx Brothers slapstick. And then father re relents at the end and then the mother's la, 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 la. so that's it. I've just given you every Egyptian film. Okay, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to watch it. But you it's went... Marx Brothers Animal Crackers level stuff. I love that stuff. It's so funny. Hey, everyone, you know, one of my favorite things in life, if not my most favorite thing in life, which, yeah, it's arguably my most favorite thing in life besides my kids, and is food and eating. Eating is my favorite activity. And eating is better and easier with Factor. Factor, I'm telling you, I tried their stuff. It is delicious. It is great. It is high quality and they are, when I say ready to eat meals, they're ready to eat in two minutes. They're not frozen. They're never frozen. They're chef crafted, dietitian approved, and literally you heat them for two minutes. Every week you have over 35 options to choose from. They have calorie smart, protein plus, keto. I just did chef's choice. 60 or more add-ons that you can stay fueled up. They had these juice shots that were incredible. These are restaurant quality meals that are ready to heat and eat when you are ready to eat. That's it. And they're really good. Elisa loved them too. There's no prep. There's no mess. I've tried a lot of these different kinds of meals. Factor is amazing and so convenient. It's so great to get home from a long day of like schlepping around and knowing you have this delicious meal waiting for you in the refrigerator that takes two minutes to heat up. And you can pause, you can reschedule your deliveries at any time. It is a great solution for those nights and days that you're looking for fast, great, delicious options with no cooking required. Okay? And factor is less expensive than takeout. So what are you going to do? Because I'm telling you, you have to believe me. I never lie. Factor is amazing. You're going to head to factormeals, F-A-C-T-O-R-M-E-A-L-S dot com slash Judy Gold 50, J-U-D-Y-G-O-L-D 50, five zero. Okay. Judy Gold 50. And use code J-U-D-Y-G-O-L-D five zero, Judy Gold 50 to get 50% off. That's code JudyGold50 at factormeals.com slash JudyGold50 and get 50% off. It's worth it. You're welcome. When you were 15, yeah. you became a sea cadet. Oh my God. Did I write that down? <laughs> I, 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 I must found have sent you the somewhere. chapter from my memoir. That's what I uh, did. You didn't send me anything. I do yeah, my I was, research. Okay, I was a sea cadet, yeah. Yes. So what does that mean? You're in high school and you're, yeah, what are you doing? It's, it's a group that's run by the Navy League, 
which is and right. what they would do is they would you, you it's like a, a navy pilot program it's not like the boy scouts and the sea cadets actually all the work that we did in the sea cadets could be applied to when you join the navy right. so we did like the basic military requirement correspondence courses and, and you had a uniform yeah you had a navy uniform you had to keep it to standards my oh dad my god you must have felt that. so great at 15 with your uniform no well i mean you know my dad was pushing me because he was a ruthless you know, Navy chief and had started uh-huh. in the real Navy at 15, right? He was a wow. six foot one, six foot one, super strong guy. Nobody was asking questions, right? Right. right. So, uh, you know, and he taught me how to polish my shoes and like spit shine them and, and put my, my, my neckerchief on correctly. And, right. you know, I had, the, I had somebody's old uniform that if you rolled the sleeves up, there were dragons Oh, sewn into the, no. the undercuffs. Somebody went to Hong Kong and had this custom wow. uniform made. Man, it was the bomb. But it was all a pilot. That, and in fact, the USS Intrepid that's in New York City, yeah. that was in Philadelphia, and we used to play around on that ship when it was in mothballs. Yeah, it was. It was sat right there in Philadelphia until it got wow. caught up in New York City and turned into a thing. And the old battleships in Battleship Row back there. There were four of the Iowa class battleships. You couldn't go on them, but you know you could hang around. Well, would you sneak? Would you sneak on or? or no, there was no sneaking onto the battleships. They huh. had big, big rail, and that was dangerous. You know the Intrepid. Though, I bet the Intrepid was against the pier, right, right down at the front gate, and nobody would really right. see you if you went up on there. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I'm just amazed no one died falling down a ladder. You know, that was 40 feet long and that, you know, eventually they, they would find some kid's dead body in a sea cadet uniform right. 30 years later. <laughs> yeah. You speak Spanish, yeah. French, mm-hmm. Latin, Russian, mm-hmm. Chinese, <laughs> Arabic and English. Yeah. I'm begging off my Chinese now because Chinese is now, um, you know, I took Mandarin, which is what they speak in Taiwan. And Cantonese uh, is is what they speak, or is that right? No, it's the other way around. I took Cantonese, and Mandarin is is what they speak in in China now, where all the kids go and live in Chinese villages or, or live in you know places in New York City where only right. Chinese is spoken. And there's lots of little white kids learning that language. Back in that day, it was again you got to go to South Philly High School, and they had a formal course with a book that was four inches thick, and they taught us phonetics first and it was very difficult to teach us the characters, you know, in the first year. Right. So, you know, um, so they essentially just taught us basic conversation and how to carry on a basic conversation, how to understand the numbers and words and things like that. I did the same with Russian, although the Russian came back to me very quickly when I was in Ukraine because I had memorized the Cyrillic alphabet so I could phoneticize things like bullshit. Uh, you know, <laughs> and, which I actually saw on a sign. And I was like, bullshit? And the guy's like, no, no, bullshit. You forget the law. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, bullshit? Because, <laughs> yes, very good. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but uh, Latin, I forgot about that because I took it, and I didn't take it, you know, Catholic kid, but I got it not in Catholic school. I went to a magnet school for uh, young kids who were proficient in languages, and they taught us Spanish and French at the same time. 
And to help us, they gave us Latin. And that's where I learned to sing Cat Stevens's uh, song, Nunc Concipitor is the name of the song, but it's all in Latin. He sings this song all in Latin. My mother spoke Latin all the time. She would, I mean, she really? would always say, you know, I'll see you anon. Uh, everything was in Latin. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, like, apparently she took Latin. Um, you, when you are in a foreign country or you're embedded somewhere, do you think in English and speak in their language or do you think in, if you know, mm. That's a very good question because each language has a pattern of speech and you have to remember to speak in that pattern uh, because you'll be speaking in an English pattern with foreign words like Arabic, you know, essentially starts with a verb. Every sentence starts with a verb. Right. And then, you know, you'll there's if you don't have the exact sentence structure, they'll go. Well, you're speaking a weird way. People look at you strange, right? Like, what planet are you from? The words are coming out in Arabic, but the pattern is wrong. I mean, it's not like Farsi. Farsi is like, you know, what they speak in Iran. There's no sentence structure and verbs can go anywhere. And it's awesome, you know. Uh, But Arabic is very much like a code. And it has to come out always verb, you know, subject, you know, and, and... and, you know, you can add things or detract, you know, subtract things from it to make it. But it's always going to be. So if I'm going to say a BBC broadcast where it says the government of Ukraine announces an airstrike has taken place on the city of Zaporizhia. Right. Yeah. Uh, it would come out announced the government of Ukraine. The airstrike. In Zaporizhia, the city. Right, or the city of Zaporizhna in Ukraine. So you but, couldn't you couldn't really think it in English, and that yeah, which, yeah, yeah. I, well, you can't go. The government announced an airstrike, which is the you know Hakuma right. al blah blah blah. You could, and it'd be like, mm, no, okay, yeah. Can you can you tell uh, what part of the country these people are from? Can you can you your dialects? Yes, and as a matter of wow. fact, my my. My first dialect, my basic Arabic course, they put you through MSA, Modern Standard Arabic. And then they put you through a uh, dialect. Uh, and my first dialect was Levantine dialect, which is Lebanon, Syria, <laughs> Lebanon, Syrian in some parts of Jordan. Wow. And it has some very, especially Lebanon, it has very distinct characteristics. Like um, you can always tell a Lebanese because, uh, for example, they use the full letter Q. You know, uh, in 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 most parts of the Middle East, in Egypt, the letter Q is turned into a G, right? Or even the K, right? Like Kamal, like Kamal Abdul Nasser, right? Right. Was always referred to as Gamal Abdul Nasser because the Egyptians always used the G, right? The Gim. So that's how you knew you were doing Egyptian, and they had like crazy words. Everybody had a different word for now. So like in Lebanese dialect, the letter Q is eaten, right? It's, it's turned into a, a, a godal stop. So instead of now, halak, right? They would say halak, right? And right. in Egypt, they would say dilwa'i, which means now. And in modern standard Arabic, which is television Arabic, they would say alan, 
right? Which <laughs> right. you know, straight out of the Quran. And uh, you know, you could identify what part of the world you were in based on the the dialectical words, the changing of the characteristics of the Q and the K, you know, and they would add stupid stuff to it, like in the Emirates, (laughs) you know, and, and just general character, you know, each country has a characteristic. So I can tell a Libyan anywhere, right. They use stupid phrases um, that are only heard there. Right. Um, (laughs) <laughs> and I will refrain. I will refrain from using them because they're actually some really very naughty phrases in many of these countries that are very characteristic. And um, you know, same thing with Iraq. Iraq has a very serious. You know, there's a north. There's northern dialects when you're closer to the Kurds, mm-hmm. and then in the south, uh, there's there's you know the Shia Muslims use different phraseology. Um, Syria, oh, Syria like Lebanese, only not as sharp as Lebanese. Um, and then uh, Saudi Arabia is 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 like the Emirates, the, the, the Arabian Peninsula, you know, has its own dialect. And also an interesting amount of American words because they watch U.S. satellite television a lot in the 50s right. and the 60s. Um, Yemen, bunch of hillbillies. No, I'm just joking you, Yemenese guys. You know, they'll, they'll stab you because every one of them carries a knife on them as a matter of culture. Uh, oh, you know, that's great. And and so my Arabic sometimes was so bad, people would say, he's Sudanese. <laughs> <laughs> you were in, you, you served 20 years in the armed forces. Yeah. First of all, you're, I guess you're a linguist, you're a cryptologist. I mean, you're so many things. You're a spy, don't, right? Well, you got to understand that cryptology, I actually have, there's this crazy crew of people on Twitter who don't like me. And they're like, oh, fuck them, you motherfucker. Oh, yeah, I know, but it's so funny because they go like, cryptology is not intelligence. And it's like, I think the guys that broke the Enigma code in World War II at Bletchley Park, you know, <laughs> Would you know? I think Alan Turing, before they yeah, him, exactly, would really you know they were all just a bunch of German linguists, right? And, you know, and so you get these people that don't know anything about what you're doing. Um, then they say, "Well, you're not a spy." Well, none of us were spies. A spy is a human intelligence term of art right. for a person we turn into a traitor to his own country for us. And, you know, we refer to ourselves as intelligence collectors uh, and the CIA, they're, they're operations officers. And so I was a cryptologic technician and um, technicians are people who do a very specific type of intelligence collection at the National Security Agency called listening to you and techs. You know, somebody once came up to me and they were like, hey, that movie Zero uh, Dark Thirty. There are these guys called technicians who are in like these cars in Pakistan using these direction finder devices. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Which is our official phrase for cannot comment. But it may have been the only thing. I I don't know whether it was accurate or not. All I know is they're technicians. And, you know, they're not operators or, you know, like the Delta Force guys or the SEAL Team 6 guys going and kick doors. But there is very highly specific collection, which can only be done by people who are in proximity to your enemies, because sometimes collection has to be done line of sight or has got to be done 
right. we with with a lot of technical equipment, but you cannot do it from a hundred miles away. You got to do it from like fifty meters away, one hundred and fifty feet away. And this is where I became very popular at Fort Meade because my middle name for oh ten years was we need a black guy that speaks Arabic. <laughs> so, I love that; it's so catchy. Well, because Malcolm, we need a black guy who speaks Arabic. Yeah, it's been uh, yeah, pretty, way better pretty than much because there yeah. were like three of us. Yeah, and th- I know two of the guys were just not into the whole. Let's go over and do human intelligence, signals intelligence with the human intelligence agencies and go to dangerous places. And I was like, per diem, I'm in it. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. Where are we going? Port Sudan? That place sucks. Okay, let's go. Port Sudan is the first place that I ever saw a slab of beef that was, I thought it was burned and charcoaled. It was just the flies. Okay, I have to vomit. Thank you. Did you did you ever feel scared or I'm in danger or I'm gonna die and I gotta call my wife and oh. say goodbye to my kids and yeah. Well, fortunately, I didn't get married till after I was in the service, and then I brought my wife into the world. Um, I took her to Iraq. Right. Uh, the only time. I mean, there were times when I was in the Navy and I was working for other government agencies uh, or on an assignment. The only times were really right after the Beirut bombing, you know, because your mind at 19 can't process 243 people vaporized. Right. And then um, I was in a miss. Well, I was in a missile battle in 1988, the Battle of Siri Island where we got missed by a missile by 150 feet. And America ah. made one. Iranians fired it. Oh. And you didn't think about it. It was just so exciting. You were like, well, we're going to kick this ship's ass. And we sank the ship <laughs> and killed everybody on board. And you're like, hey, oh, what was that? God. Noise? <laughs> you know, it was oh, like it was God. a missile that would have blown your ship in half if it hit you. And you get inured to it after a while. I'd done so many operations. Uh, I remember in the first Gulf War, my ship hit a mine. And um, I, later that evening, I was hanging out with these Marines and they were like, they used to call me the funny gunny because I was hanging with the Marines. I wore digital desert uniform or camouflage uniform. And they go, hey, did you hear the chief this morning? The funny gunny? And I was like, what do you mean? Did you hear the chief? Yeah, as soon as it blew up, he jumps out of his bed and he puts his hands in the air and he goes, everybody relax. It's just a mine. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, so long as we have the generators on, we're fine. All power immediately goes off. Oh, we lost God. The we lost. I was like, okay, that's not good. So, <laughs> but we got power back. We were sinking just a little bit. And, you know, we, we left. But over time, you build it up. And I can tell you the most frightened I really, really ever was, was actually when I was out of the Navy and I was an intelligence contractor in Iraq. Okay, this is the stupidest story, and it's going to be in my memoirs. And it was also the most dangerous thing that I can tell you I've ever done. And my poor wife, I didn't tell her for years this story. And when she heard it, she started punching me like, you (laughs) bastard. You know? So I get this radio call. We're in Baghdad. I only work with the Iraqis. And I have an Iraqi team, all these Iraqi teams guarding facilities and doing things. And... And so I get this call and I know at 3 a.m. 
they're not calling me. They're calling our main base, but it's all in Arabic and it's panic. And I hear the panic in their Arabic. And it's like, base one, base one, this is blah, 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 this is base one, base one. And I'm like, okay, shit, something's going on. So I grab the radio. I go, this is the chief. My name is the chief. I go, this is the chief. She's talking about, you know, what's going on with you? And he goes, chief, chief, trouble, 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 chief. I'm like, fuck it, all guns, let's go. Right? We get all our guns. We jump into our personnel carrier, which is a BMW 750i. (laughs) Okay? All blacked out windows. We got all of our automatic weapons. Two of us roll out. Two cars roll out. And I'm thinking, I'm on the streets of Baghdad at 3 a.m. with a car full of Arabs hit guns. And it's the Americans that are going to vaporize us with a missile. Or Al-Qaeda has just seen us roll out and we are all about to die. So we drive, we just zoom down to this place. We get to the site, we dismount, guns up. Everybody's like, wow, what's going on? And I'm not even going to tell you the punchline. I guess I'll tell you the punchline. We get there, everyone is, all the lights are on on this compound. So we're going to get hit, right? We're going to get hit with rockets because you have this Al-Qaeda welcome party with all the lights on. Right. It's supposed to be black. And these guys are all hunkered down around a fire. They're drinking tea and, you know, yakking to each other. I'm like, where's the attack? And they go, no attack, chief. And I go, what? What the what the F? You know, and he goes, chief, chief, very bad, very bad, chief. And I'm like, what? He goes, what? And he goes, come with me, chief, come with me. And he goes, what? And he goes, up there, up there. And I'm like, what? You know, I'm yeah. like, weapons forward. I'm like, oh, he goes, genies. I go, genies? I go, you will tell me precisely what you mean, but I want you to speak it to me in Arabic. Right? Because I could not yeah. process it. He goes, Chief Akujin, Akujin. I go, there are Dejin. I said, Dejin. He goes, yes, Chief, the gene. I go, min al-Quran al gene, right? From the Quran, the genies. And he goes, yes, Chief, gene. I go, you must be effing kidding me. I just went, <laughs> I just went to the BMW, guns out in Baghdad at 3 a.m. I'm waiting for attack helicopters to shred me with a hellfire oh missile. Oh, my God. And you're seeing effing genies? <laughs> it's like, oh, Santa Claus came. We wanted to show you. Problem is, genies are entities that exist in the Muslim world. Right. They're they're in the Quran, the jinn, right? Uh, And they are, they interact between heaven and earth. Like genies come down and take wives and have babies. Right. and, And do mischief and do all these things. And they present themselves in certain ways. Um, And they are deeply, deeply believed. And so I was like, I'm going to find your mother. <laughs> I'm going to find your I'm going up to find your genie. And they were like, chief, chief, dirbali, chief, dirbali. Oh my God. Be careful, chief, be careful. I was like, someone's getting shot. <laughs> I go up to the roof where they see the genies, right? Floating in the air. They said, genies. And I go, it's got to be a drone. It's got to be something right. man-made. I get on the roof. I see nothing. There's nothing up there. They're right. There's nothing up there. And then I think, I'm doing this wrong. I'm doing what they're doing. I go, I'm going to put on my night vision. (laughs) So I turn (laughs) on my nods, my night vision. And I look down and I see the distinct glow 
of another set of night vision. I put my weapon up and I turn my laser on and I light this object up with this big high intensity laser. You can only see it on night vision. Uh-huh. And that's when the green nod, you know, the green lights go off and the thing moves and slowly slides down. And I realized those are Americans. Those are snipers. Wow. And I go, and I go so I, I really should have saved this story for my memoir. I go, hey, you, can you curse on this podcast? Oh my, what the fuck? Of course. Oh, okay, okay. So I go, Shit. so there's a rule in survival evasion that, Talking at low voice doesn't carry far. Whispering carries further. The comics do that too. Yeah. Because if you, if the audience is go, is like really not paying attention, you start talking like this. Right, right. Yeah. So, so I whisper, hey, you fucking idiots. <laughs> right? And I go, scout snipers, scout snipers. Right. And then then I go, I'm going to laze you. Hit me back. Right. So I know they hear him. Right. So I hit him with the laser once. Laser comes back. I go. They think you're fucking genies. (laughs) Are you ready for this? They start laughing out loud. (laughs) I go, get off my fucking roof. Displaced to another place. I ain't got time for genes. <laughs> and they're, they're giggling now. They're like, <laughs> they're like, and I come back down. I go, the genies are gone. <laughs> that is fucking hilarious. You got to name that chapter I Dream of Genie. <laughs> that is fucking hilarious. Then when I got home, I realized that is the most dangerous thing I did in Ever my career. D- right. Oh. Like sitting here going, I can't believe he's car bombs. I can handle them. Gun battles. I had one major gun battle, which we stumbled into, right? Right, because they were actually hosing an American private security contractor team. We were behind these guys, and I was like, Oh, oh shit, here we go. But this, when I realized every second an American missile would have hit us, right? Or worse, Al Qaeda would have been, these guys think they're our genies. Let's attack them. <laughs> okay. I'll grow with that. That's funny. Kill them. So, oh my God. And we can drink their tea. You know, <laughs> this is the sort of stupid things that happen out there. My oh, wife, God. I wife. would be so scared. I, I, don't, I don't know how you do it. Now, here's Tommy, the thing. That's how yeah, you do that's it. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to part one of Kill Me Now with the one, the only, Malcolm Nance. Kill Me Now is produced by Laura Vogel, edited by Colin Schmeling. This podcast and my life would not be possible without the help of Brittany Jo Sowards. If you are listening to this and you have not subscribed or left a review, you're an asshole. Uh, Please, it helps more people find the show. The review has to be five stars and that's it. Uh, Don't leave a review if you're not going to do five stars. Okay? Please. Because this is a labor of love. I make no money from this. It's just something I love to do. I love telling people stories. And I love interviewing people. So, there you go. As I mentioned in the beginning, I will be in Fort Lauderdale on March 26th at the Savoir Theater. There's a, a place called the Raz Room in the Savoir Theater. And I, I don't even know if I'm saying it right, Savor, but that's what I 
that's how I want to say it. And I'm going to fucking say it like that. Okay. On uh, April 9th, I'll be at Governor's uh, on Long Island. Check my website for details. Yeah. And I'm on TV. I'm on Better Things. And uh, I hope you're enjoying that show. It's so fantastic. As I say so long to you before I say so long to you and give you my Twitter, Instagram, and email address. Um, email. Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. What is wrong with me? At Judy Gold, J-E-W-D-Y-G-O-L-D, because I'm a Jew. I'm a Jewish comedian, and so is the president of the Ukraine. And I'm thinking about the Ukrainians. My heart goes out to them. Anything you can do, anything you can donate, it's just a really sad situation. So I just wanted to say... I mean, my saying something doesn't do anything about it, but it's just, it's awful to watch. Um, we are better than this. And I, I hope we can have peace at some time in the future. Keep laughing. Very good. It's a very good coping mechanism, and it's very important. Thank you for listening. If you're still listening, I love you. You know I love you. I don't even know if they're... See, I always say, if you're still listening, write to me or text me, you know, or, or tweet at me or whatever and say, I listen to the end because I'm doing this for you, for the one person who is still on here. So thank you. And as we always say, so long, g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-g-